Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Hey, howdy, everybody. Glad you're back. And by the way, I always forget to say, if you like this podcast, please give me a five-star review. Uh, I don't uh, ask that almost ever, and I need to do that more often, especially on iHeart, if you're listening. Uh, So now, today, I want to talk to you about the changes and how we look at dementia, especially dementia diseases, in the world of research. Because there are snake oil salesmen, which I have heavily debunked and called out. And then there's real research. And not very long ago, People just assumed that dementia itself was just a natural part of aging. And that only a couple of people like Alois Alzheimer's and Stephen Louie and so on and so forth were ever interested in studying it, talking about it, publishing their findings, whatever it was. And I would say in the last 35 to 40 years, Major changes have taken place. Uh, I think the biggest one is that people now know that dementia is not a disease. It is not a result of natural aging. That a dementia disease is caused by a specific identifiable processes um, that a diagnosis is important because then we can identify treatable conditions and strategies and techniques and I believe from the bottom of my heart that it is important to have a proper evaluation so that we can manage these diseases that at the present day and age are not curable. We still, despite what Dr. Dale Bredesen and his stupid book, The End of Alzheimer's, says... We have not found a cure. He has not found a cure. Supplements are not the cure. And today, all over the world, we have an immense amount of research increasing every day. And they are focusing solely on the dementing illnesses under the dementia disease umbrellas. Alzheimer's, 
Lewy body Parkinson's, ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, Korsakoff's, Pick's disease or frontal temporal, Parkinson's, having a stroke, vascular dementia. They're looking at all of those and they're using new tools for studies. Taking a really good, long, clearer look at what goes on in the brain. Because the better that we have public understanding, then we're going to have more demand for solutions. And you know, way back in like... um, 2005, there was $750 million that was postmarked for dementia research. And we're trying harder and harder to get more money for research. We need to. Most of the research itself is supported by the National Institute of Aging. We call it NIA. There's also the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, the National Institute of Mental Health, the Department of Veterans Affairs. And that National Institute of Aging, they've been funding Alzheimer's disease research for a long time. And they've been pulling together super talented researchers and a lot of exciting work taking off in places all over the country, all over the world, in these centers, research disease centers. Sometimes, you know, we have people like uh, the Alzheimer's Association or drug companies or whatever that are funding some of this. But unfortunately, there are really good research projects that are not being funded every year. And we need to be able to have more of this going on. I I think it's important. I have a research study I am doing right now with Dr. Samantha Holden, who's been a guest on my show multiple times. And we are really excited to change the face of healthcare as we know it here in Denver. I've been very careful not to give all the secret sauce away, but in the next couple of months, we will be working heavily on this research study, and I will tell you more about it. But I think it's important for us to understand and be aware of Alzheimer's disease and an ever-increasing ridiculous amount of announcements of breakthroughs and cures. Some of those are important in the building blocks of searching for a cure. But each step people make is just one small step in the direction towards a cure. We're not there. I'm not trying to look for a cure. I'm just trying to look for a better way to work with families in my research study. 
But nonetheless, we have to understand the therapeutic implications of research and how it challenges scientists and families to strive to find a cure. I want to find a cure so bad I cannot see straight. I am sick and tired of it dealing and hitting my family and friends and my clients. I'm just so over that. And when you're reading about research, like um, the Aduhelm that came out about a year or two ago, I don't think people know how to read about the research. You just read what somebody wants you to believe, and we become sheep. We start just following what somebody says. Biogen decided to back this Agihelm after the Alzheimer's Association errantly decided, in my opinion, and many others, by the way, uh, to back the Agihelm drug, and knowing full well that its efficacy was minimal at best. But Dr. Mary Carrillo, through the Alzheimer's Association in Chicago, the national office, decided that you all out there needed something to hold on to. Well, I personally don't need something to hold on to that cost me a half of, a million dollars, about, well, I'm sorry, $100,000, $100,000, and makes my brain swell and bleed. Thanks, Mary, but no thanks. Very, 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 very disappointed in that particular stand on that particular research. But I want to try and help you today to understand what you read, okay? So when research scientists do something in their labs, they need to make their findings public. And the public wants to know what the researchers are finding. People get excited and they have enthusiasm of the press in publicizing what they find and how it plays a role and how it's going to maintain public support for research funds. And then what happens is later families are discouraged when the press makes announcements that there's been a breakthrough that turns out to be disappointing, like the Aduhelm I was talking about. And scientists have to go down some blind alleys. They just do. Something will look like it's a good lead. The family and the scientists will be excited. The trail goes cold. It's frustrating. They rule out something. They rule in something. There's one less avenue to go down or investigate. Some of the clues, just like jigsaw puzzles, eventually fit together, and some don't. And some of the pieces don't go where they thought they would go in the puzzle, and then they don't reach the desired result. 
you know, the, the, the thing that we struggle with about this is that conditions like Alzheimer's are different than infectious disease, COVID, diphtheria, chickenpox, polio, all that kind of stuff, right? And infectious diseases generally have one cause. They have a specific infectious agent, and they lead to one outcome. And Alzheimer's disease has several, and probably a lot of causes, actually. We think about tau. We think about beta amyloid. We think about coffee and food and diet and all the things that we think play into it, learning new things. But none of them are infectious diseases that we can just go straight down that path. It just doesn't work that way. And so this makes it look more like a family of, of diseases. It's a combination of triggers um, for a person to develop the disease. And most likely the, the disease is going to have different triggers in different people. It's going to have different presentations in different people. And they have to try to track down what seems like a dozen different causes and a dozen different possible treatments. So in general, they could have multiple causes that lead to similar symptoms. It's not as easy as just trying to figure out some infectious disease like COVID. And when they do a study, you have to eliminate the influence of other factors, like a new technique or a new drug being tried. What if the patient gets better? What if the patient gets worse? Sometimes the people that are participating in it and their families believe that their family member improved while taking the drug. And there's a lot of reasons why that happened. Some of it's wishful thinking. Some of it's the clinicians trying to make you think positive. Um, families trying to cheer them up or brighten their day if they're thinking a little bit better. Oh, boy, that was clear as a bell. Must be that research project you're in, that medication you're taking. It must be working. Ooh, that's good. Sometimes it's just placebo. Placebo is, is something that is not a real drug. It's just a waterish type thing. And people think that they are doing better when they're not. Maybe they didn't even get the drug. And then, then you really do have a placebo effect. And if you're in a really good study and there's some kind of a pharmaceutical involved, they are super careful to design and eliminate the possibility that other factors are causing improvement. They want to make sure that they're going down the right path with you. And if it's a good study, they should do some preliminary studies on smaller groups of people, like 20 or 40 people. The small size of a sample group, you know, just like... Um, 
when Dr. Potter was first working on his uh, leukine study, he had like um, 25 people. And the second time around, he added about 15 more and he had about 40 people. Now he's got 400 people. So it's that kind of thing that increases the chances, unfortunately, that extraneous factors, meaning more than one, different possibilities, blah, 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 will confuse the outcome. And if you hear exciting results from a small study, those results may or may not be the same or confirmed as well or in the same way as if they did it with a large group. It it just changes as it grows. Things change. Smaller groups may may seem like they're doing so much better when they're actually not. These kind of things happen all the time. You can't you can't take everything at face value when we get a cure, we will know it. Trust me, we will know it. Okay? And you could have more than one factor that really makes one group, you know, the group that got the real drug, the group that got the placebo. Um, how, How those two groups turn out can be a little confusing, a little dicey sometimes. You might get similar results between the two in a small study. The A, B, and the B group, you know, they might, they may have some C factor. Um, How old they are, how many years they had the disease process moving along before they got in the study. Um, how well they're being communicated with with their family members and things like that. There can be things that can skew the the results to a degree, and that's why it's kind of important to do a bigger group than just a really small group because you could have skewed data. It's important to get the right thing. I'm going to take a short break, and when we come back, I'm going to try my best to explain how drugs work differently on different people, which could change the data that is presented once the research is over or done with its first um, piece, the, the first study piece, and why do things look different? Why does somebody have a brain bleed and other people don't? These are confusing factors. But we're going to look at them. I'll try and explain them to you, and we'll be right back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, 
We provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988 to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, so I'm talking about research today and... What does it mean when you hear about a research project that's doing extraordinarily well? What did it mean when Agihelm came out and they were trying to push it as the next late, latest, greatest thing? And then 13 doctors that served on the uh, Food and Drug Administration advisory panel for Alzheimer's and other dementia disease drugs all walked off of that council and quit because they so vehemently disagreed with Mary Carrillo and the Alzheimer's Association about pushing forth Aduhelm, a drug they knew did not work. And yet it was passed at the pushing of the Alzheimer's Association. And they are now in their offices trying to explain to their patients why they don't want somebody to spend $100,000 or more their life savings on a drug that they know has almost no efficacy. And yet people say, well, the FDA approved it. You know, all that does is ruin credibility and make us scratch our heads. It's so annoying to me, I can't stand it. So I want to talk about what happens when they bring a drug like Agihelm that can affect the brain of a person with Alzheimer's and cause serious side effects? Not only in the brain, but throughout their body. And most people would say that research on drugs like that have to be stopped because their potential damage to other organs outweighs their therapeutic value. This happens all the time. And people get really bent out of shape. They get super PO'd when people do these drug studies on animals, laboratory animals. Dogs, cats, mice. But they do that so they can learn more about how the brain works and to test drugs on animals before they test them in people to try to make sure they're safe. I know that PETA people will eat me alive for this, but there is some benefit. To me, there's a lot of benefit to doing this on 
animals first. I have a dog. I love horses. I like cats. I like bees. I like butterflies. I don't even mind the snakes in my yard because they eat the mice. I get it. But we have to have some way to make sure that humans are safe before we test this stuff on humans. And there are laws that are supposed to assure that animals are treated humanely. When researchers work with animals, they have to take into account the way the animal's reactions are to similar, similar human actions and the ways they are not similar. Giving large doses of some kind of a chemical to an animal with a short lifespan could change how they see this happening in a person. And they can use computer models, but they can't replace the animal research. To a degree, we just need it, my friends. We do. We just need it. And I'm not against the Alzheimer's Association. I worked there for many years. I still think they have a lot of value. I'm just really pissed off about what they did on that Agi home. I'm just bent. Uh, but they often report on breakthroughs and highly publicized claims. They put them on their website. They're trying to provide families with accurate information. And if you have questions about that, call your local chapter, ask them questions about something they posted on their website. If they can't answer it, they shouldn't have it on their website. That's what I say. There's also breakthroughs that are always listed on the Alzheimer's Disease Education and Research website. But I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, and believe me, there are a lot of these out there. There are bogus cures out there. There are some unscrupulous individuals who promote cures, and they can be expensive, they can be dangerous, they can be ineffective, they can unfairly raise your hopes that they're going to cure your disease. The Alzheimer's Association has in the past kept a list of some of those fraudulent products and treatments. They used to have, after I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed for years, uh, information about Dr. Dale Bredesen's uh, ridiculous claims that he has done any real research but then, now they don't put it out anymore. I don't know why they're afraid of him. I'm not. Dr. Bredesen, if you want to call me and get on my show, you are welcome. Any day, any time, I'll be happy to have you on my show. But there are people out there that are disciples that pretend to be doctors that have little or no value. They make treatment claims of keto diets 
and and supplements, and they say that they will benefit you and lead you to a cure. And $20,000 later, if you find that you are not cured, I can guarantee I can show you why you weren't cured. Getting back to what are the doctors researching? Well, they're researching vascular dementia, strokes. They're trying to figure out why people have multiple strokes. Strokes are actually the second most common type of dementia disease. They're trying to find ways to improve rehabilitation when somebody has a stroke. And thousands and thousands of people would benefit from that. They're trying to figure out how hypertension, obesity, diet, smoking, heart disease, and probably a zillion other factors increase a person's vulnerability to have a stroke or what we call vascular dementia. They're currently researching the difference or the relationship between larger strokes and smaller multiple strokes. And how do we prevent it? How do we eliminate or minimize the risk? Those are things they're trying to find out. I hope they do someday. They're also looking at clots and how to stop people from getting blood clots. What's happening in the brain chemistry? They want to find that out too. And how does it change when somebody's had a stroke? All important stuff, right? One thing they've discovered over the past few years, I just read this recently, that depression can cause strokes. I did not know that till recently, but yep. Yeah, I think that's pretty crazy. And of course, Alzheimer's. What are they trying to decide in research for Alzheimer's? Oh my goodness. We could talk about this forever. So when Alois Alzheimer's, the first researcher that we are aware of who unfortunately got this disease named after him, he took tissue from the brain of Augusta Dieter. And she had behavioral symptoms of dementia. He saw he saw changes in her behavior after monitoring her for an entire year. And in that tissue, he saw microscopic changes called plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. And at the time, he called it neuritic plaques, meaning senile, senile plaques. So we use that terminology for years and years. It's funny, though, 
And this is what I tell people all the time. Similar structures are found in a lot smaller numbers, but they are found in the brains of older people who don't have a dementia disease, Alzheimer's. So they are studying and they are analyzing the structure and the chemistry of the plaques and tangles so they can understand how they form and how, what is their role in becoming a disease. Other things that they are studying are brain cells. We have billions, and I do mean billions, of nerve cells which carry out all of the tasks that we have, my friends. Thinking, remembering, feeling emotion, body movements. And for years, scientists have known that a small, deep area of the brain called the hippocampus, that little indentation in the back of your neck, it loses many of its cells in that area at the beginning of Alzheimer's disease. It, it goes dry. It becomes attacked and, and unavoidably the catalyst for the start of the disease process. And all the cells in that area die in a very, I guess I would call it a predictable pattern. And that's what causes the progression of the symptoms of the disease. Other things, and you guys are smart enough, you can follow this. Other things that they are looking at are the neurotransmitters, the chemicals in the brain. And they pass messages from one cell to the next cell. And those neurotransmitters are broken down within the brain. Um, there's many different types of neurotransmitters for different types of cells. And we use those for different tasks that we do. Um, and we need a certain amount of neurotransmitters to help us to move, to help us to talk, to help us to dance, uh, to help us to open our eyes, to move our head, to, to do all the things from a movement standpoint that we do. That's just an example, right? But one of the other problems with those neurotransmitters is that there's something called acetylcholine. And we also have serotonin. We also have several other, um, it's kind of called like, uh, mm, I, the best way I can describe it for you is that it is a, um, the word is kind of tough. It's corticotrophin releasing factors, which means it's the way that those neurotransmitters work with other neurotransmitters in the brain 
And when there is a disruption in that, it causes Alzheimer's disease. And scientists for a long time have been trying to reverse Alzheimer's disease and to find medications that can increase the amount of that acetylcholine and in other ways stop the deficiency of those neurotransmitters in the brain working together, but it just hasn't happened yet. And there's so many things that they're looking at. Hormones, estrogen, thyroid, um, all that works directly with the brain that influence the levels of those neurotransmitters. It sounds difficult, but it's really not. I'm trying to speak slowly so you can kind of understand what I'm trying to say. But the bottom line is that if those neurotransmitters have beta amyloid and other tau proteins and, and different agents that are disrupting the way those neurotransmitters work together, that presents as symptoms. And doctors are looking at that, trying to figure out how they can stop that and reverse Alzheimer's invading the brain. It's not really that difficult to say, but it's very difficult to do. And the way they're going to have to do that, Dr. Potter explained this to me. He's a major research researcher. He said, the body takes food, breaks it down into amino acids, and then it builds the proteins that it needs. And one of the lines of research that he's trying to explore is the possibility that Alzheimer's disease could result in abnormalities of some of those proteins. That's pretty advanced thinking. We already know about the beta amyloid that are found in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. It's back to those neuritic plaques, meaning senile plaques, and how they have amyloid at the center of their existence. And people have deposits along those neurofibrillary fibers in the blood cells. And that protein is controlled by a gene on chromosome 21. But in spite of 20 plus years of research, we still don't know how that protein is involved in the disease process. They're still trying to figure that out. Some people produce slightly abnormal forms of the amyloid protein and the body can't dispose of it. And they've looked at many of many of those people trying to figure out how how do they counteract that? 
And what inflammation in the brain is causing a reaction that leads to cell death? Oh boy, if they knew the answer to that, I think we'd have a cure. Some of the other things that they're looking at are chemicals that travel within cells. And some people with Alzheimer's have abnormal forms of these proteins. And I've talked at length about that. That's tau protein. And microtubule-associated protein. A lot of researchers now think that these abnormal proteins form after the amyloid protein abnormalities. And they're making the situation worse. And that's what's causing the neurofibrillary tangles that we are so um, adept to assigning to people with Alzheimer's, plaques and tangles. And how do we continue to grow nerves in the brain? How do we continue to help our central nervous system have nerve growth factors? That usually happens outside of the central nervous system. But if we can get people to regrow or regenerate after they've had the plaques and tangles injury, um, maybe we can slow the process of Alzheimer's disease. How cool would that be? That's That's all the stuff that Dr. Potter is doing right now. Super excited about what he's trying to do. There are doctors who are looking at transplanting brain tissue. And they've already been doing it in animals. They're working with that through stem cells. It's complicated, it's difficult, but it's pretty doggone exciting. I hope maybe someday we can get there. There's tons of drug studies. Tons and tons of drug studies. You know, denezepil, uh, which is um, Ercept. And some of the others, Namenda and Exelon, we know that they temporarily, with a very, very limited efficacy of about six months to a year, can improve cognitive function. But it is not in any way, shape, or form a cure. But we have not had hardly any drugs come through the system. I think the last one that I heard of was Mimetine. Mimetine was supposed to work by blocking the toxic effects of 
other brain neurotransmitter problems. Um, it had limited ability, uh, but we're just not we're just not there yet. We're just not there yet. There's a lot to study. There's a lot on the horizon. I think, in general, that the land of research is doing well and providing really hopeful things for our future. The American Neurological Association just had their big conference uh, this last weekend, and I can't wait to see what comes out of it and what new and exciting things they have going on. And every year, there is a big Alzheimer's international conference that that doctors studying it all over the world go to. I would love to go to that sometime. I really, really would. Um, and just see all the different things that are going on all around the world and report back to all of you. But I'll have to save that for another day. So, as far as research goes, be careful what you read. If somebody is trying to tell you they found the end of Alzheimer's, you will know it. There will be there will be huge announcements on television. We have found the end of Alzheimer's. We have found a cure. Somebody's found a cure. It'll be the biggest news since sliced bread, I promise you. Unfortunately, we are not there today. Please don't spend your hard-earned money making somebody else live in a big mansion in Bel Air. And with that, I will see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.